One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Stephen Kinnock, the Labour MP for Aberavon. He's also a Shadow Foreign Office Minister, but he's here today to talk about his new group, Labour Renaissance, and their brilliant report about reconnecting Labour with the voters that they've lost. I've put a link to that report in the blurb. Just click on the link. It's dead easy to read. The information is really well presented. It's a fantastic analysis of where Labour has gone wrong, but it also provides some pragmatic and concrete advice about what Labour needs to do to get back into government. And we talk about that in some detail. Before that, though, I'm so sorry that there hasn't been an episode for a couple of weeks. I've not been very well. Thank you for all your messages about it. It wasn't COVID. Thank God I was testing myself. I mean, it felt like I had all the symptoms of COVID. Um, but I tested negative throughout and feel a lot better now. So... Thank God for that. But I'm just so sorry that I wasn't able to do the live event last Monday with Caroline Flint. I was so excited about it. I've never interviewed Caroline before. I know a lot of you were very excited. Um, but you can transfer those tickets to a future show. And what better one than this coming Monday, the 8th of November, with the leader of Scottish Labour, Anna Sawa. As if there wasn't enough to talk about on the back of COP26 and all the politics of the Labour Party, the Labour Party in Scotland, the UK Labour Party, all the different constitutions ramifications and also the fact that Anas is such a star he absolutely bossed those leaders debates in the uh, Holyrood election really charismatic really likeable that will be a very very special night you can get tickets for that through the website mapford.com slash live and of course in a couple of weeks time Anthony Scaramucci is going to be live on the show that one's at the Vaudeville Theatre then two weeks later Jeremy Hunt will be the first time he's done a live show and then two weeks after that a Christmas special and some Big guests to be announced for that and for the um, year, uh, next year, for January onwards, which I'm very, very excited about. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And obviously today's guest, Stephen Kinnock, had been a subject of a previous email about places you'd seen politicians, particularly if it's a bit strange. Uh, Max has been in touch and said he was at the Royal St George's Golf Club for the Open Championship with my dad this summer and I saw Nigel Farage. He was wearing a tweed jacket, a plaited shirt with some old boy's tie and a pair of 30-year-old cords. I mean, Max, I don't know how you were able to carbon date Farage's trousers, but well done. Um, I won't tell the rest of the story because it involves Max going up to Nigel Farage and saying a rude word to him, which, of course, we do not condone on this show. Uh, but let us know where you have seen a politician, particularly if it's in a place you wouldn't expect to see them. I mean, I guess if you go and watch a major golf tournament and you see any politician there, it's not like seeing them in, in Parliament, is it? I mean... <laughs> Of all the places you might expect to see Farage, I guess that might be high on the list. But email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. On to Stephen Kinnock. This is quality. We talk about his Labour Renaissance report. This is just totally sobering. Absolute straightforward politics. Real common sense. We also talk about, as you might expect, what it's like to grow up as the son of Neil and Glenys Kinnock and the effect that's had on his politics 
and uh, maybe even his career and the decisions, the life decisions he's taken. Um, and it, we end with a story that basically comes out of nowhere about his time in Russia that is incredible. So this starts as a brilliant analysis of where Labour's going wrong, where it could go right, what it needs to do, and just some proper hard-nosed politics. And that report is great. You've got to read it. And it's so easy to read. And, and it, I'm sure it will hit a note with a lot of you. But it's just great to read anyway. It's just really good research, very well presented. Uh, and we go into detail about some of the things in this conversation. Um, but the stuff about his dad, the stuff about Russia at the end. Oh, my God. So listen out for those things because they are real treats. I began by asking Stephen, there's all these new Labour groups now. Labour to win, Labour first, Labour together, Progressive Britain, and now Labour Renaissance. I asked him, what does Labour Renaissance do that those other groups might not? Well, I think what we're trying to do, Matt, is to... Uh make it really clear that the only route uh, back to power for our party is to reconnect and rebuild trust in those constituencies uh, that we lost uh, on that terrible night in December 2019. And what we've done with our first project is to uh, reach out to those communities, had a number of conversations with people that used to vote Labour and uh, not just uh, gone in for a big exercise in self-flagellation, which the parties are so good at, uh, analysing why it is um, those, those voters stopped supporting us, although that is an important part of our work. But then we also talked about what, what Labour needs to do in order to regain their trust. And we found that there were three or four really key uh, messages about our party that we've got to uh, push through because that's the only way we're going to get a hearing on policy. Um, nobody's listening on policy because people generally think politicians just make empty promises that they don't deliver on. Um, there's a lot of cynicism out there. So in order to break through that, we're saying we've got to be absolutely clear that Labour is the party of work and good jobs. It is in our DNA as a party. The clue's in the name. We are the Labour Party and talking about the dignity of work, about you know work not just being the paycheck at the end of the month. It's also about the contribution you make to your community, uh, putting food on the table for your family, being part of something bigger than yourself is, is why we are so passionate about work. Um, then it's about uh, a part of the party that invests in order to save. So we are very careful managers of the public finances we invest in public services now in order to save money for the taxpayer in the future. And the third story, really big story about the country is a Britain that can stand on its own two feet more firmly. That is not at all about protectionism. It's not at all about open versus closed, which has always been a false binary. It's actually about rebuilding the resilience of our country, rebuilding our manufacturing sector, uh, bringing some of those good jobs back to our country, tapping in, of course, to the green industrial revolution, but making it clear that actually under the Tories, Britain's been put up for sale. So much of our critical national infrastructure being sold off. One third of uh, Hinckley Point is owned by the Chinese government, effectively. Uh, so we want to rebuild the country in a way that uh, is good for British workers, uh, good for British exports, good for British productivity, building skills, a green industrial revolution, uh, and, and not allowing globalisation, frankly, to just carry on ripping through our communities, which is such a big part of why we've lost 
lost support in those communities, I think, over, over the years. So that's what Renaissance is about. We're now looking to take that message out to uh, constituency Labour parties uh, around the country. And, and we've started doing that and been having some really great conversations. There's so many big ideas there that are, that are going to be great to talk about. But just, just to return to that starting point then, is Renaissance specifically focused on the so-called red wall, about winning back ex-Labour voters, or is it also looking towards targeting the voters that Labour not needs to just get back in order to be competitive, but then those those Labour Tory switches it needs to actually win an election? Absolutely. It's about um, recognising that we need to win 124 seats in order to form a government without needing another party uh, to, to give us the numbers. And the only way to do that is to rebuild in those seats that we lost in uh, December 2019. Uh, so it's about saying, look, when you talk about work and good jobs, that matters just as much to somebody in Hackney as it does to somebody in Hartlepool. Uh, so I think there's a bit of a sort of false binary around, well, you can either be the party of graduates living in big cities or you can be the party of non-graduates living in small towns. I think there's actually a huge amount that unites those people. But I, I do think that we are, we've become a party that's perceived by voters in places like Hartlepool as not having their best interests at heart, as um, not being really clear about uh, what it is they see as, as a patriotic, internationalist, but patriotic vision for the future of the country, We're, you know, not a party that is only about um, supporting people who are on welfare, although that's a really important part of what we do. We must always stand up uh, for people who've fallen on hard times and who need a hand up. But we're about uh, creating those good jobs, about the wealth creators, about creating a really positive partnership with business. Uh, and also we are watching every single penny of um, taxpayers' money like, like a hawk. And that, that, I think, is those messages have been a bit lost uh, in, in recent years, all the, the turbulence and upheaval we've had in the party, real, real questions about our patriotism as a party, frankly, under previous leadership. Uh, and, and we've got to work so hard to dispel those concerns. And frankly, those, are, those concerns are more strongly felt in places like Hartlepool than they are in places like Hackney. Why do you think Labour struggles so much with patriotism? I think that there's been uh, a real misunderstanding around what patriotism is, and it's unfortunately been um, uh, put together with nationalism and become synonymous in the minds of a number of uh, Labour Party members that if you say that you're a patriot, it somehow makes you a xenophobe or uh, a chauvinist and absolutely nothing could be further from the truth in fact i would say that patriotism is diametrically opposed to nationalism because a patriot is somebody who is actually quite humble about their country who wants their country to improve wants to listen and learn from other countries but is also deeply proud uh, of the country that we come from and what we've achieved in the world and uh, the fact that we can be a force for good. Look at all the incredible institutions that we have, like the BBC, like the NHS. Uh, look at all the amazing work we've done through our development programmes. Look at the brilliant work that organisations like the British Council that I used to 
work for do in terms of building uh, connections, particularly between young people in the UK and other countries and having that cultural exchange. That's patriotism. That's the kind of patriotism the Labour Party stands for, building those international uh, coalitions and, and working for um, uh, the, the betterment of, of people across the world. Unfortunately, I think uh, some in the Labour Party have taken a view around the legacy of our empire uh, and certainly some of the things in our history that we should be ashamed of, uh, frankly, but they've allowed that to dominate their view of our national story. And the, that's meant leaving a vacuum, which of course has enabled the, the right wing to own the flag. We should never have allowed that to happen. We should own that flag. We should own the Union Jack, just as we own the Welsh Dragon and the Scottish Celtire, um, uh, and be proud of that flag. Uh, but make sure that we do it in a positive way, not a nationalistic or chauvinistic way. Well, it's interesting the flags you mentioned, because obviously Labour has always struck me. Loves it when other people are proud of their national identity, uh, specifically Palestine, it seems. Um, and they don't mind seeing other countries' flags uh, waved at the Labour Party conference or indeed from people's windows. But specifically the Union Jack and even more specifically the St George's Cross seems to strike fear into the heart of even fairly sensible people on the Liberal left. There is a kind of, even with if, if you think of the British flags, English lefties are perfectly comfortable seeing the Scottish flag flying or, or the Welsh dragon, but the St George's Cross feels like a very different thing to them. And I wonder, I guess it's the same thing that you're saying about it. It feels like it's owned by a, a militant far right. That's right. And, and because we've left that vacuum, uh, it, it has become something that's toxic in the minds of, of some people and the minds of some Labour Party members. So there's a huge job to be done in the party to, to win that argument about being proud of our identity, but never allowing uh, you know, simplistic views of people's identities um, to dominate the way in which we talk about politics and the way in which we talk about becoming a party of government that can actually change the country for the better. Um, once you go down the road of identity politics, you actually diminish people, you impoverish people because everybody's identity is complex. You know, I'm a boy that was born in the Welsh valleys. I um, We moved away to London, uh, which is when I lost my Welsh accent when I was, you know, seven or eight years old. Uh, I then went away and lived and worked in a number of different countries. And now I've come back, I've come back uh, to the country of my birth and I'm deeply proud of that um, but you know my time away from the UK really helped me to understand I think to understand the UK better and to be so proud of what it is we do around the world but not proud in the sort of there's a bit of a Tory way of viewing Britain which is Britain alone uh, you know British exceptionalism uh, we don't need other countries where we can do all this in splendid isolation that's not patriotism. That actually undermines our national interest. Uh, we've got to be the, about building alliances, reaching out to other countries. But you've first of all got to be strong at home and proud of those institutions. You know, I, I heard somebody the other day said there's, a, there's, there's two political parties that are opposed to the BBC, the Chinese Communist Party and the British Conservative Party. <laughs> you know, uh, is that really in our national interest to be hammering one of the great... <laughs> Uh, examples of British soft power 
in the world. But that's what the Tories do because they're nationalists, they're not patriots. Uh, the, the, the previous Labour leader may have not been a big fan of the BBC. I mean, the, the SNP as well. You know, there are, there, are, there are many other critics of the BBC within the uh, British political mainstream uh, beyond, the, beyond the Tories. But let's think about... Um, some of those things about, about making Britain stronger and some of the recommendations in your report, that, that thing around industry, because we, we, we've moved, obviously, from the post-Thatcher landscape is a service sector economy. Are you saying then that it's the return of heavy industry to Britain that, that would benefit the, these areas that you've done your research in? What we talk about is a modern manufacturing renaissance. We're, we're never going to go back to the days of, of you know, smokestacks, uh, big factories uh, with thousands of workers in them. Um, and I'm very proud of the fact that I, the biggest steelworks in the country is in my constituency, the Talbot Steelworks, and there are still 4,000 men and women employed there. Um, but it is the exception. You know, most modern manufacturing now, I think, is about... Um, you, know, you may well have big hubs like the steelworks or a big uh, car manufacturing plant, but then you look through the supply chains and you've got lots of small businesses. I think we need to be um, doing everything we can to foster a modern manufacturing renaissance, which is based on small, uh, in many ways, I would hope also family-run manufacturing businesses, making widgets, making uh, the kind of um, technology, uh, using the kind of technology that we need for the green industrial revolution. And what we need for that is a complete reform of our banking sector so that it's much more about providing the kind of uh, patient capital that those uh, small businesses need in order to start up and scale up. It's about having a clear path on energy so that businesses know which way to go on their energy. And our energy costs, by the way, are way, way too high compared to our French and German uh, competitors. And it's about real investment in, in those skills for the future, you know, proper vocational training programs that is actually linked to business and where you're developing the curricula and the skills that businesses need. That, I think, is about saying we should be really ambitious about rebuilding our manufacturing sector. You know, since the 1970s, it's collapsed from about 30% of GDP to around 9% today. And that uh, is the cause of so many of the weaknesses in the British economic model. Uh, the amount of wealth and resources and talent that have migrated to London and the southeast, that's because of the collapse of our manufacturing sector. Our productivity crisis, well, the, you don't get productivity out of services, really. You get it out of manufacturing. So that, again, the manufacturing, uh, the collapse of our manufacturing sector is at the heart of the, the structural weaknesses in our British, the British economic model. And I think we should be really ambitious about saying, look, within one parliamentary term, we should be committed to trying to get uh, our manufacturing sector back up to 15% of GDP. Have there, has there been a, a party political implication of the decline of the manufacturing base that, uh, you know, organised labour around steelworks, coal mines, car plants, meant that working people were in trade unions and they had perhaps a, a greater political consciousness around their uh, workplace and the service sector perhaps has eroded that sense of identity and that in turn has played some part in the breakdown between Labour's relationship and, and, and working people. Um, and do you think, you know, having a, a return to some sort of manufacturing base would have a positive implication for the Labour Party? Absolutely. I, I think um, the, the collapse of the manufacturing sector has had a massive knock-on effect in terms of 
the way that many of the communities that used to be in our manufacturing heartlands uh, have grown increasingly disillusioned and angry, frankly. Uh, I think you can. there's a direct causal link between the collapse of the manufacturing sector and the vote to leave the European Union. There is no doubt at all about that. Um, and what we've seen is uh, the services sector has also ended up with being a, a two-tier system, really, with the kind of high-skill, high-wage, mainly financial services part of the services sector um, going to London and the southeast, and the low-wage, low-skill part of the services sector, you know, you're thinking Amazon Warehouse um, um, uh, kind of employers, uh, uh, taking over in the areas where which used to be our manufacturing heartlands and you know that has a massive political impact because what it says to people is globalization has ripped through our communities it's taken the 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 good jobs uh it's undermined in many ways the social fabric of the of our town um and in return we've ended up on zero hours contracts and with jobs that don't deliver the kind of dignity and self-esteem that we want to see. And that's why I think there's such a, there's a political case for rebuilding the manufacturing sector, which is about returning a sense of pride and a sense of community um, and a sense of the dignity that good work brings. Uh, And I think that's a massive opportunity for us as the Labour Party, because I think we genuinely can talk authentically about that. There's a real dividing line with the Conservatives because they've been the architects of um, that massive shift into the services sector. And of course, uh, most of the the big fish in the financial services industry are are donors to the Conservative Party. So we we know uh, what their motivations are. There's another issue, isn't there, with, with organised labour, with industry, which is Labour's relationship with the trade unions. And I, I wonder what the Renaissance view is of that. Obviously, Labour's relationship with the unions is, is difficult. It's born out of the union movement, as well as the Fabians and the co-op and, and everything else. Um, huge funders of the Labour Party, a, a, an important emotional connection uh, to particular uh, sectors of our economy, but also at times a hugely problematic relationship where the perception is often that trade union barons like Len McCluskey uh, have undue influence over the leadership and direction of the Labour Party. What's the Renaissance view on on what Labour's relationship with the union should be? So our view is that the uh, umbilical cord uh, between uh, the unions and the Labour Party should, should never be broken. We should absolutely stand proud in our view that you know the Labour Party was created as the voice of working people in Parliament and that is at the heart of our identity as a party. Um, what our, our view is that le- the trade unions need to be given uh, a far more meaningful and influential role in the way in which our economy works and we're seeing it now aren't we, with this heavy goods vehicle drivers crisis um, that you know <laughs> Actually, people can blame a lot of different things for the crisis that we're in and the government's failure to plan for the impact of uh, Brexit, etc. But at the heart of it is the fact that um, trade unions in this country weren't given a proper role in terms of collective bargaining and setting minimum uh, standards in terms of uh, working terms and conditions for lorry drivers. And that is what's driven the exodus uh, at the end of the day. So um, it doesn't it doesn't suit anybody's purposes to have 
uh, an economy which isn't based on proper consultation with the workforce, working with trade unions to have a grown-up relationship between business and unions, which leads to workers feeling consulted and happy and consulted workers are more productive workers. So if you want to look at how to, to solve the so-called productivity puzzle in this country, a big part of that is the fact that, you know, since Margaret Thatcher's time, trade unions have been increasingly marginalised and you can, you can connect that debt directly uh, to the collapse in productivity uh, in our country. So um, it actually makes good business sense. And I think what, what Renaissance is saying is we want to make the business case for uh, more constructive industrial relations. Uh, and, and that actually, it serves both the purpose of um, rebuilding that sense of pride and dignity in work, and also the sense of more productive and more pro more profitable enterprise. The Renaissance Report, and I'll put a link to this in, in, in the blurb of the podcast so that people can download it. It's a fantastic Thanks, report. thanks, a free a plug, a, a massive plug. Yeah. That's huge. huge, thanks a lot. Well, it's great research and it's, it's brilliantly presented as well. So you spoke to 60 voters in six locations in England and Wales. Um, before we come on to, to what you spoke about, why didn't you include Scotland? We just felt that the, the constitutional debate in Scotland and the, and the specifics of the, uh, uh, the, the challenges that we're facing as a party in Scotland would have just merited a, a project in itself. Um, it, it's just such a, a special uh, and uh, profoundly challenging situation that we're in there, of course. I also actually happen to take the view that the only way we're going to really start to rebuild in Scotland is by becoming a credible uh, party of government in England. Because it's only once uh, voters in Scotland who might be looking at the Labour Party seriously will only really start to vote Labour in Scotland, I think, uh, on the basis of seeing that we've got a credible chance of being the government in Westminster. Because if they're presented with the uh, prospect of another five years of the Tories in Westminster, they may well just carry on saying, well, we might, we might as well vote for the SNP. So I think that actually the, the, the key to this is rebuilding uh, right across the UK, of course, but the, the electoral Everest that we currently face starts with the seats that we lost in December 2019. And that the, the, at the heart of Renaissance is to, is to make sure that we make that argument very clearly right across the Labour Party. And, and I hope that we can, we can win that argument and make sure that our, our entire strategy for the next general election is based on that. So the, the, the groups you ran were in South Yorkshire, Stoke, North Wales, Wolves and Dudley, Plymouth uh, and Peterborough. It's sort of different parts of the country, the east side of England, Wales, uh, the, the West Midlands and obviously the South West. What were the things that united people in all those different locations? A very strong sense of community, a very strong uh, sense of um, wanting the very best for themselves and their children, a very, sen a very strong sense of work as a really important part of their identity. Um, and a strong sense of patriotism, actually, a, a view that, um, you know, that Britain's best days are ahead of it, that we need to be very ambitious about the future of the country. On, that's the positives. On the negative side, um, there's a really strong sense of disaffection and disillusion about politics in general, a view that politicians are all in it for themselves, they make promises that they never deliver on, a huge amount of cynicism 
uh, out there. Uh, in, in the report, we call it this cycle of cynicism, which is really, really challenging for us as a party, because whilst people are cynical about every aspect of politics and politicians, they do see the Tories as having delivered Brexit, uh, having delivered on um, furlough uh, and on the vaccine rollout. And, and so there's a little bit of a record of delivery there, which means that, that you know, that, that's where we're, we're struggling because, of course, we haven't been in power now for, for uh, 12 years and uh, 11 years, and, and we're, we're struggling to cut through on that basis. So I think those were the, there were, there were definitely positives and negatives. People still feeling very hopeful about the future of their communities and their countries, worried about it, but hopeful. Um, but also uh, very cynical about politics in general. And, and in order to break through that wall of cynicism, that's where we've got to start really talking about the future of the country and these, these kind of stories about the future of the country that I mentioned earlier on. It's interesting that you mentioned furlough and the vaccine, because that's what I always think about. You know, when people say, why are the Tories still ahead in the polls? You think, well, they paid people's wages. And to be fair, they've got this vaccine out. You know, it was partly yeah. developed in the UK, a lot of it. You can totally understand why people go, well, that's a good thing. And everyone who gets the vaccine, you know, there's an emotional reaction, let alone a, a public health or an individual health one. But what do, do people raise Boris at all? And, and how do they feel about him in those places? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think um, there's definitely an association with getting Brexit done. And um, well, you, you'll know, Matt, I, I, I didn't support the second referendum policy. Uh, and I think that it was very damaging to us in terms of with the, these voters we're talking about now in this conversation, uh, a feeling that we were looking down on them, that uh, saying, you know, they didn't understand what they voted for. Let's have another go at it. And, and I, I, I think we're, we are still being punished for that. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I do think that they associate Boris Johnson with somebody that, that got it done. Now, you know, of course, we're seeing so much of it unravelling now and the whole way in which he's gone about it. Is, but that, you know, that's another conversation, really. This is about trust. And um, they, that's, that's, a, that's a big part of it. I think there's a, a part of it which is around um, this perception about standing up for the national interest and the huge damage that was done during the Corbyn years in terms of our, uh, you know, and you can trace it back particularly, I think, to the position that Jeremy Corbyn took on the poisoning of the Skripals. So um, that, I think, I hope that bell doesn't disturb your podcast too much. Guys. No, it's nice. It, it lends an yeah. authenticity. It's like we're there yeah. in Parliament with you. Immersive yeah. experience. We're, we're right here. Yeah, exactly. That's um, it's happening in real time. So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, they, I don't, I, in a sense, I'm not sure that we know exactly what to make uh, of Boris Johnson because, you know, he's the first prime minister in history who has deliberately put himself forward to people as not being a serious person. I mean, he, he, he you know, he, he, uh, he campaigns on the basis of being a joker. And, um, you know, we, we didn't go into big in-depth conversations with the, the, the people that we talked about. We talk much more about the parties than about individuals uh, in our conversations. Um, so this is more my personal view, more based on rather than based on the conversations that we had through Renaissance. Um, but I think, you know, we, we're in a situation where the, the country is going to have to make a choice between having a joker as a prime minister or having uh, Keir Starmer, who is a serious man for serious times. And now time will tell uh, whether people will 
will uh, take the right choice. I certainly hope that they do. But in the meantime, what we've got to do is work to support Keir, who's laying the foundations for the story that Labour needs to tell about work, about sensible financial management, about a Britain that can stand more firmly on its own two feet. Uh, and and that is the that's what we need to make sure that that's at the top of people's minds when they think about the Labour Party, uh, rather than thinking too much about the personalities uh, and about this, um, you know, the kind of snake oil that Boris Johnson is selling to the country. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com well i guess as well it's it's not just about whether the the country perceives Keir Starmer to be a serious man for serious times, but whether it perceives the Labour Party to be a serious party for serious times. Mm. It's not just the leader, perhaps, that will be on people's minds. The mm. reason I raised Boris was because one of the really interesting things in your report is the importance of free speech. And I, I wonder how much Boris Johnson has been better at connecting with people that feel like... Well, I should be able to joke about certain things. And, you, you know, in the privacy of your own home, you should be able to say certain things. And, and Labour maybe has felt culturally on the wrong side of that, that there's a, a po-faced element, not just around some of the things you, you mentioned earlier, but about the things you can and can't say anymore now. I mean, there are various reasons why that might not necessarily be a positive thing. But I wonder if Boris Johnson just appeals to people more in that kind of way, that actually being a joker helps him because people think, well, actually... Of course, you need serious politicians, but also people like to enjoy themselves. People like to feel a bit positive about the future. And perhaps he, he, he does that in a way that Labour politicians don't. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's really important that we don't come across as a, a sort of po-faced party that's uh, preaching in a righteous way at people. Um, and, and, you know, it's really important that we are clear about um, the fact that free speech is a vitally important part of our democracy and people have got to be allowed uh, to make their views clear about what are often quite uh, complex uh, subjects um, you know and I I don't think that we should be reducing uh, the political debate to this very simplistic view on identity politics I mean, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier that I think people everybody's identity is very complex whether it's about your sexuality about the you know gender sex race your class where you came from your view of the world where you are in terms of uh, being more liberal on certain things and more conservative on others a lot of that I think is just about individual choices a, I, I think there's a lot of that that politicians shouldn't really be getting involved in at all you know I, I don't think it should be our job to be pontificating in very generalized ways because by definition as a politician you have to talk in generalized ways um, because you're not 
it, you're not plugged into the personal lives of every single person in this country. Thank God, may, long may it be thus. So rather than being um, hung up on things that I think are much more about personal choice, let's make sure that we talk about the things that really matter to the country, the bread and butter issues, work and good jobs, managing the public finances sensibly having a clear view about how we're going to rebuild our manufacturing sector and be a country that stands on its own two feet. That's what, when I talk to, this isn't just about the Renaissance focus groups, that's about the, the doors that I knock in my own constituency and other constituencies when I've you know gone to by elections and that's what people want to talk about. Um, and one of the encouraging things actually, Matt, in the Renaissance conversations, we actually tried to get people to talk about culture wars and culture war issues. They they weren't really that interested in it. Well, they, they talked a bit about, yeah, you know, they, a few people talked a bit about the snowflake generation and that kind of thing. But but frankly, they didn't associate it really with a political party. So I'm not sure that the Tory game, we know the game they're playing, which is to try and get everyone talking about the culture wars as much as they can, because it's a, they think it's a great distraction and, uh, and it distracts people from all the uh, failures that they have in terms of taking our country forward. Um, that it, I, I actually don't think it's cutting through that much with with certainly with the communities and the people that we spoke with. And I found that to be very encouraging. One of the things that, that really comes through in your report and, and that has run through the Labour Party as long as uh, I, I've known it is this the whole thing about hardworking families. And obviously it was during the new Labour era, working hard for hardworking families. And it's a, a phrase yeah. that Keir Starmer's used. Uh, good jobs you can raise a family on is something that comes through yours. And I totally understand that. When I was a member of the Labour Party and would go campaigning, the people I always found it hardest to sell the Labour Party to were, were single men because they'd say, well, you're doing everything for families. What, what are you doing for me? And you could say, oh, well, you know, crime's been cut on this street and the NHS and all those things. But we say, well, I don't really, you know, you're stuffing everyone else's mouths with gold. You're giving everyone else cash. But what are you doing for single people? Is there a danger that when Labour understandably talks about family for a number of reasons there's a danger that actually you are cutting out other people from, from the conversation. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I mean, I, we, I've always wanted to talk about family in the broadest possible sense. So every one of those uh, single men will have a mother or father. They, not all of them will. Some will be estranged from their parents. Who knows? But, but there's, most people have got family links of some sort it may well be you know i know people who don't have kids but are very very close to their nephews and nieces and spend a lot of time with them that's family um uh, a lot of people who you know have got uh, parents who are uh, perhaps not very well uh, and need care that's family um I, I think it's a we need to be clear that you're you're part of something bigger everybody in this society, in this world, is part of something bigger, and and that you need to be, in in terms of your sense of feeling positive about the world and who you are. We're, we're social animals. We 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 get our energy and our sense of identity and well being from our interactions with other people. Uh, you know, I think there's some people whose friends are so close that they see them as family. That's family as well. I think you know, there's it's that much broader sense of being part of something bigger, being part of a community, either people that you're related to by blood or that you're related to because you love them uh, for whatever reason. Uh, you know, I, I think we as a party need to be 
there's a huge opportunity for us to say that something has gone wrong over the last 11 years around people being pitted against each other, one group against the other, divisiveness in everything that we see coming from this government. And uh, we need to be the party that talks about how we bring families and communities together. And I actually think that, that work and a government that is investing properly in public services and a government that's standing up for the national interest, those are the things that can start to um, heal some of the wounds that we've seen over the last years and start to bring the country back together. And that's the exciting, uplifting, compelling story that we've got to tell about the future of the country at the next general election. One of the great things about your report isn't just that it, it this fantastic research about how people feel about the Labour Party and their community and their national identity and all those things. It actually makes recommendations about how Labour reconnects with people. One of the recommendations is that Labour should critique the Conservatives through a communitarian lens. What does that mean? Yeah, sorry for the wonky word, but I... <laughs> I, I, just, I just felt that over... over recent years this idea of us being in a kind of class-based politics doesn't really work anymore for the reasons we've just discussed that you know the old uh, collective workplace ethos um it it has gone and the world has changed and we've got to move on and um, and we we certainly can't be you know um looking back th through rose-tinted lenses uh to some age that probably didn't really exist it, it gets romanticized you know and you know my, my grandfather uh, was a coal miner and and um you know he made it very clear to my father that uh, that's not a, a career that he wanted for him because it was unbelievably tough back-breaking work in very dirty and difficult and dangerous conditions so you know let's not let's not romanticize some bygone age we're not about that uh, at all um but but we are about um ensuring that we've got that that clarity about the the future of work and um the future of what it means to be rooted in your community and doing something that is contributing to the green industrial revolution to the high-tech opportunities that we have as a country and and what community what communitarian means is much more around um the values uh and the uh culture that people in those communities want to see and and, and many of them have got two cars in the driveway and are, are, are going on at least one family holiday per year and good for them more power to their elbow but they have those values which are still, I think, the values that my grandfather who worked down the pit had. Those values are timeless. The type of work that people are doing, the type of lives they're living have changed. So I'm not sure it's right to talk about them as working class people anymore in the old sense of what we might define as working class in terms of what my granddad did. Um, they are, but they do have these communitarian values. Uh, they are rooted in their community. They've got that patriotic vision about the future of the country. And, much of that will be, you know, pe people in Hackney are just as committed to their community as people in Hartlepool are. But at a national level, I think there's this sense uh, from those people in Hartlepool that the Labour Party doesn't get them anymore. 
doesn't understand what they stand for and what gets them out of bed in the morning and what kind of country that they want to live in. So we've got to make it absolutely clear that we are their party uh, and we understand their values and where they're coming from. Uh, and, and that, I think, is what we meant by everything that our party does does need to be seen through that communitarian lens because if we don't ensure that we reconnect with those voters, not only have we got, are we in serious trouble for the next general election, but it's also about, it's our moral responsibility. It's our duty as a party. Those are the people that we were founded to represent. Um, and so we've, we've got to do it, uh, not just for electoral reasons, but also for moral ones too. The Hackney-Hartlepool idea is fascinating. And I wonder how many people in the groups that you spoke to mentioned London and their relationship with it, because London seems to become a shorthand for uh, metropolitan values, uh, privilege to some extent, all sorts of things that apparently the rest of England and perhaps even the rest of Britain doesn't like. And I wonder how much that came up, if at all. It wasn't uh, specifically kind of comments targeted at London, but there were there were comments targeted at the Labour Party around, we're not sure that you get us, uh, and we're not sure that you are... You, there, a, a sense that the party has become too defined by one sense of the divide. And I, you know, I, I really don't like talking about the divide. I don't like the term red wall because I actually think that it's this sense that, you know, there's some kind of hermetically sealed part of the country, so sealed off by a wall that the rest of the country doesn't get. And that's exactly the opposite of what we need to be doing and what we need to be talking about. Um, but we do also have to recognise the reality, particularly, you know, turbocharged by the referendum on the EU, that those divides have been created they are there um and they've been fueled by the conservative party of course who've, who've specifically looked to pit one group of people against another so the question then is what are we going to do about that and and um there is a sense that the the party's got these you know huge amounts of support in uh london and the big cities and there's a and um, but we've been losing support particularly about from amongst people who didn't go to university and who live in smaller towns. That is a simple fact of life. It is happening. The question for us then is what are we going to do about it? And, and the way I think is to, to recognize the issue and to say that there is a communitarian um, community out there in the country and they are particularly based in those constituencies that we lost in December 2019. And then it's got to be about saying every every piece of communication that our Labour Party does, every policy that we put forward, every interview on the Andrew Marshall, every uh, uh, line that we take, uh, every position that we take, both in terms of what we are saying on the front foot, but also reacting, has to be seen through that lens of the people where we, whose support we've been losing and whose support we need if we're to have any chance of forming a government after the next general election. Politics is about choices. I mean, I'm the last person needs to tell you that. Right? Uh, and, we, we, you know, you've got to take those choices uh, and be clear about them so that people are really clear about what you stand for. And have you spoken to Keir Starmer about this? We've been in close touch with his office um, and, um, you know, uh, had really good conversations about uh, 
how we take it forward. Um, you know, we, we're very keen to engage with with uh, CLPs uh, across the country. Uh, had really good. I had really good chats with people about it at a party conference. So yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think the thing is that when you look at the, the key messages coming through um, Keir's uh, conference speech and also the, the pamphlet that was published shortly before it, you know, he talks about work, care and security. You know, these he is laying the foundations for where our party needs to be. Everything that Keir is saying and doing shows that he absolutely gets what we're, what we're talking about here in, in this conversation. Um, but he can't do it alone. He needs us out there. You know, it's about every single one of every member of the PLP, every Labour Party member and activist saying, you know, ask not what the Labour Party can do for me, ask what I can do for the Labour Party. And, and Renaissance is, I hope, going to make a contribution to us getting that message out there as clearly as possible. You mentioned your dad earlier, and obviously he's a hero to many people who listen to this podcast, he's a hero of mine. And his place in Labour history really is of the leader that that dragged the Labour Party back to where it needed to be in order to win, that he did all that hard work, um, often at huge cost to himself. And people think of that amazing conference speech. And perhaps there are a, a minor echo a few weeks ago where Keir Starmer was heckled and had to deal with it, perhaps not in quite the same volcanic way that, that your father did. But here you are. Uh, a member of the Kinnock family, trying to get the Labour Party back to a winning position. I mean, there must feel a, a strange sense of fate or destiny. Yeah, they, they, well, they say history repeats itself, don't they? Well, but sometimes they say history repeats itself as fast. So I'm hoping that's not the case <laughs> in, my, in my case. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, look, I mean, you know, Dad's a hero of mine too, and he's an incredibly courageous guy who was relentless in his pursuit of what matters in politics, which is about getting into government so you can actually make a difference to people's lives. And I think it's one of the great tragedies of our modern political history that he didn't quite make it in 1992. Um, we are in very different times now. Um, you know, and, and you've got things like social media and the incredibly sort of fragmented way that politics works these days. And, and, and you know, Dad says to me, I, my God, I'm so happy I'm not a politician now in this age, in the age of Twitter. <laughs> he just thinks it's awful, you know. Um, uh, and uh, it, uh, so I think it, it, it is a really, really difficult time. I, I'm a very different person to my dad. We're we're temper temperamentally quite different, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know that's uh, uh, you know that's that's one of the things that always makes it interesting to chat with him, and sometimes agree and sometimes disagree. Um, but you know it, the 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 basic principles of his leadership are exactly the same now as they were then, which is that. Um, you, you, when you present yourself as a political party to the country, you have to be talking about the things that really matter, the bread and butter issues that really matter, and not be being distracted by um, rigid and ridiculous ideologies uh, that the, the voters across the country they don't they're not interested in it they, they want to know what you're going to do for them are you going to look after the public finances are you going to generate the jobs that they need to have are, are you going to stand up for our national interest um and 
that many things in politics have changed since the 1980s and early 1990s, but, but those things remain true and constant. And where do you uh, place yourself on the on the political spectrum in relationship to to Neil? Are you to the right of him? Are you are you to the left? Are you, are you in the same place? That's a that's a really good question. Um, I think we're in a very uh, I think we're in a very similar place in the sense that um, we know that you must never let the perfect be the enemy of the good, and that we have to be pragmatic and persuasion is much better than purity. Um, I think there's big, some big differences. I mean, I, I came into politics much, in representative politics, anyway, elected politics much later than he did. I mean, he was a, I think he was elected to parliament when he was 28, but I was, I was 45 when I came to this place. Um, and I lived and worked in a number of different countries and I worked also quite a lot in, in business or in organizations that were very much connected to, to business. Um, so I, I think he, you know, he's just, he came through a very different route. Our experiences is very different. And uh, we've, one of my passions, which I, you know, I, I don't think he, he was always really, really interested in the role of business in driving forward our, our economy but he hadn't had that direct practical experience of doing it. And I, and I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm so full of admiration for entrepreneurs and people who run small businesses in our country because I've been part of a small business myself. I know how much responsibility you take for that profit and loss at the end of the month about the salaries that need to be put to the, for the people and their families that that business supports. And um, that, I wouldn't say that makes us any, me more to the right or to the left of him because I, I just think that there's a there's a there's a voice the voice of business in um, democratic socialist or social democratic politics whichever way you want, want to see it is a massively underheard voice and that's one area where I think he I think he he would probably if you asked him he'd probably even admit he might be able to learn something from me on that. <laughs> That's probably the one issue that he could ever admit that to, to that to being at least in public anyway. <laughs> oh, your mum's a huge political figure as well, Glennis. What's it like growing up the son of, of two political titans? I mean, do, do you feel like you were you could only have ever then ended up in, in Labour politics? And in a way, is it does it bring a it must bring so many benefits, but it must be a pressure in other ways too. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, pressure is not a bad thing. Uh, I think pressure uh, drives you to uh, be ambitious and not in terms of personal ambition, but in, in terms of being the best person that you can be and um, making the best contribution that you can possibly make. And and what mum and dad really gave me was just a really strong set of values, I think, about... Um, how you should behave towards other people um, and how you should always try to be part of something bigger than yourself. And whether or not you choose to do that through going into politics or working in business or working in the media or in, in, for an NGO, whatever it might be, you've always got to be the, the best that you can possibly be and always behave in a good way towards other people it sounds very simplistic, but I think that those values, uh, then you, it's up to you to choose which way you want to go with that in your life. And 
I tried for many years to, um, I, you know, the, the fact that I went abroad and, and worked in a number of different countries maybe showed that to some extent I, 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 I needed to get away and, uh, and find out who I was without that such having such a, a pair a pair of parents with the such a strong such big figures such big characters and i love them dearly for it but you also need to make your own space you've got to you know you've got to be your own man you've got to be your own person and and uh, i think that um so i certainly never regretted waiting for as long as i did until i went into politics i never regretted going out there and, and doing different things in different countries and, and um, in some ways enjoying the anonymity that that brought and, and innate, that enabled me to, to find out who I was, I guess. And, and, but there was always a fire burning in my belly uh, to come back. I, I, I could never shake that political bug, you know. And, and then what really turbocharged it was my experience in Russia, where um, I was the director of the British Council in St. Petersburg, and um, we got caught up in the, the, you know, the meltdown in the relationship between the UK and Russia over the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko on the streets of London with, a, with polonium-210 and a nuclear, you could argue, you know, it was a, it was a nuclear attack uh, on, on our streets from, from um, the Russian um, establishment, the Russian government. And, and that ended up in a very, very difficult situation for us in St. Petersburg and it ended up in the end, we, we tried to stand up against the Russian government. We refused to close the office down when they were trying to make us close it down. And my staff were put through um, terrible experiences of intimidation. You know, the, the, the FSB, the, what used to be called the KGB, the Russian secret services were, were harassing my team. And in the end, we realized we had to, close the office down but what that experience taught me was that we take our democracy for granted far too much and um it made me want to be part of um the debate in this country about how we defend democracy and and how we value a parliament and how we stop those who want to undermine our democracy from doing so uh, and and that's uh, that that experience in russia is what tipped me over the edge and made me realise I, I needed to come back and, and needed to, to have a voice in the debate. Oh, man, we could have... We needed a whole episode on, uh, on your experience in Russia because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it was... And terrifying. It, it, it was formative. It was formative, but it, it, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. They, there was a, a, you know, that the sort of fateful night. I don't know how, how long we've got with, to talk about this, but there was a... My, my own direct personal experience was on the day where they summoned my staff into the FSB headquarters in St. Petersburg. And, you know, I was waiting outside for each one of them as they came out. We knew, we knew it was over then, really, that we were going to have to shut the office down because we just couldn't guarantee the safety of our staff. And I drove home that night and parked up outside my, my flat in St. Petersburg. And there was a Russian police car waiting for me there. And and uh, they came out and tried to claim that I'd been uh, drink driving, that, that, that uh, they said they'd seen me jumping a red light and complete and utter nonsense. And so I refused. They tried to make me take a breathalyzer test and I refused to take it um, and uh, took my claim my diplomatic immunity. Russia is one of the few countries in the world where British Council staff had 
diplomatic community still, because usually the council tries to keep an arm's length relationship with the foreign office. But in Russia, for obvious reasons, we needed to have that diplomatic status. And so then there was a kind of standoff. And um, we, uh, in the end, the, the consul general came down and, and we had to kind of make a break for it from the car into the house, uh, you know, sort of bundling through. And in the meantime, the the sort of four plainclothes guys had turned up and got a video camera out and started filming me in the car, and, you know, knocking on the window and trying to get me to come out all in, in Russian. And, and yeah. you know, I was, I was sort of saying no. Um, and um, they, they were sort of claiming that I'd committed all these driving offences. And it was just, it was a terrifying experience, but it, it, it's absolutely strengthened my resolve to, because you just see what it's like to live in a country where there's no accountability where the authorities on a whim can do whatever they like to you and there's nothing you can do about it. And I just think we, we, we take our, our freedoms uh, and what democracy has given to us uh, for granted far too much actually in this country. And, and that's one of the things I'm passionate about. Standing up to plainclothes Russian officers in Russia. I mean, given the context of Litvinenko, you could have been killed. Yeah, I, I, I kind of always took the view that the political cost of um, them doing me harm, any kind of physical harm would, would outweigh the potential benefits. But I, I certainly had no intention whatsoever of taking that breathalyzer test because, it would, you know, that was on the very same day that every one of my staff had been summoned in to see the FSB. So it, that, it was absolutely clear that there was an agenda. Um, so, you know, we you sometimes find yourself in these situations and you you just have to say well you got to you got to try and keep a cool head and and uh and and stay calm and and in the end you know we 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 did what we had to do we did what was right which was to not fall over and and just give in to the pressure that we were under to stand up for the fact that the British Council was doing incredible work in St. Petersburg with thousands and thousands of young Russians learning English in our centre, loads of amazing uh, cultural exchange projects, music and literature and theatre. Uh, and, and, you know, actually, that's what young Russians in that town uh, wanted. And, and we were very happy to sit down and talk to the authorities about how we can make sure that we could continue to operate uh, but you know it was a it was politically motivated uh the you're dealing here with ruthless people and we have to be absolutely clear when we're standing up to authoritarian regimes whether it's china uh or, or russia uh or, or any of the other dangerous um countries that we see out there you have to be absolutely robust in the way that you stand up to them because um, if you give a bully an inch, he'll take a mile. I mean, usually when people talk about standing up to Russia or China, they mean it figuratively. You literally had to do it in the street, at potentially cost of your life. So, I mean, it was a treat talking to you anyway, Stephen. I didn't realise <laughs> how much of a privilege it is because you, you may not have been here. My word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hair raising, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I had any hair, it would have been raised. <laughs> Um, uh, Stephen, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Matt. It's a real pleasure. And uh, keep up all the good work. It's, it's great stuff. Cheers, mate. 
Well, there you go. Stephen Kinnock, what an absolute star. And joins that group of people like Peter Kyle, Anna Turley, Alison McGovern, of guests I've had on this show recently that might not have the biggest profile yet but that are powerful communicators and definite stars of Labour's future. So keep your eyes peeled. And that report, I'm sure you've read it already. I'm sure you've already, after me plugging it at the start, I've downloaded it, read it and digested it far better than I ever could. But it is a cracking read. And it's, I always just think with these things, it's always worth just following these things on Twitter. Labour Renaissance and Progressive Britain and Labour to Win and, and, and the Conservative equivalents and the Lib Dem equivalents and the SNP equivalents and just seeing where some of the voices away from the leadership are. Who are the people that are doing a bit more of the thinking that can say a bit more than perhaps leaders can sometimes? Who are the people trying to influence the direction of these parties? Uh, and that's always, they always make for very good reading. Any report on what a party should do, I always think, is, is, is a cracking read and, and Labour's Renaissance one really is. So thank you to Stephen Kinnock for coming on. Thank you, you, uh, for downloading this it's good to be back it's good to be alive and thank god i didn't have covid i hope you're well too because there's obviously this other cold going around and um, that if covid's not getting people this cold is so just be careful out there and um, that's why wearing masks is a good idea because you know it's still a physical barrier that might just reduce your chance of getting something um, and thank you to all of you that have bought tickets to future political party events, including this coming Monday, the 8th of November, with one of the biggest stars in British politics, Anna Sawa, the leader of Scottish Labour, live at the Duchess Theatre. What more could you ask from a night out in London's West End? Uh, get your tickets for that and all future shows, mattford.com slash live. And of course, spread the word about the podcast. Tell your friends, tell your families, post it on social media and... If you can summon it from within, the energy, while you're listening now, just to open Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, say something nice, and help the podcast get up the charts. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra! It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.